Exodus chapter 20, Genesis, Exodus, of course, the second book in the Bible. And let's look at the first commandment. This is God speaking to Moses, as you know, from Mount Sinai. It says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God in heaven, we we do love you. We do serve you. At least I hope everyone here loves you and serves you and worships you and lifts up your holy name. Father God, we just thank you and praise you that you are the God that you are, that you are the only God, the one and true living God, a God of holiness and mercy and love and grace and long-suffering kindness, patience unto us, your people. Father, we thank you that you revealed yourself to us through the Holy Scripture so that we might know you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you also revealed yourself to us through the living word, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly came to earth, became a man, left the bliss of heaven to enter into this sin-cursed world for the sole purpose that he might seek and save that which was lost and that he was willing to put himself on an old rugged cross and die in our place that we might spend eternity in his presence and in your presence if we put our faith upon him. And Father, should there be this new year one among us who has never ever trusted Christ as the one and only way of salvation the one who died for her sins, I pray that this year and even this very day, she might ask him to come into her heart and to save her to repent of her sinful condition because we are all hopeless and helpless apart from you, Lord. There is no way we can earn our way into heaven. So I pray that one might even today ask you to save her from her sinful nature and give her your new imputed divine nature so that she might know for sure that she to spend eternity with you and be considered one of your children. Father, now I ask that you clear our cluttered minds from all that we have been through. I know it's been a month since we've been here, so help us to refocus on that which you have to say to us through not only your word, but through your servant, Jacob. For we pray these things in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. It had been 20 years since Jacob had seen his home in Canaan. It had been 20 years since he had fled from Canaan to escape the murderous hatred of who? Right, his brother, you know, his older twin brother Esau. And for all those 20 years, Jacob had been submitting very patiently to his devious, selfish, and conniving father-in-law Laban. In the final six of those 20 years, God had intervened in Jacob's difficult situation with Laban by prospering him tremendously with uh, what? Not only a big family, 
and, but uh, lots of children, also lots of wives, which wasn't God's plan. But God had prospered him with a lot of sons and also with livestock and with servants and, and all sorts of material goods. So we closed up before Christmas talking about the fact that the prosperity of Jacob soon brought into play, as it often does, the jealousy, the envy of Laban and his sons. And that's what we saw in the first two verses of chapter 31, which is where you need to be, Genesis chapter 31. And it became very apparent to Jacob that it would not be safe for him to remain in Haran with Uncle Laban, father-in-law Laban, very much longer. Furthermore, God himself had spoken to Jacob in a dream, telling him that it was time to return to the land of his father. And then remember we uh, learned how Jacob consulted with his two wives, Rachel and Leah, about this whole situation with not only their father and the fact that his countenance had changed toward him, but also the fact that God had spoken to him and told him it was time to leave. And they both agreed, both wives agreed, agreed that it was not only the fitting and proper thing for him to do, you know, to take his leave of their father, but they agreed that it was the wise thing to do, especially since God had told him to do it, right? It's always a wise thing to do something if God has told you to do it. Would you all agree? It is absolutely the wisest thing to do. It is unwise to do otherwise. Oh, <laughs> a little pun there. So um, it was uplifting to, uh, to us to finally find Leah and Rachel in harmonious unity as they said to Jacob if you look at the end of verse 16 they both said to him whatsoever God hath said unto thee do and we talked about the fact that that is always good advice to give anybody whatsoever God says to do do it so with his focus back on God and on the land that God had promised to him and to his descendants, Jacob finally began his return trip to Canaan. In this lesson, which I have entitled Stealing Away, which is taken from verses 17 to 35 of chapter 31, we're going to discuss, as you see up here, six outline divisions. And they will very quickly be Jacob's flight, Laban's pursuit, God's intervention, Laban's accusation, Jacob's defense of that accusation, and Rachel's deception. So let's begin by looking at verses 17 to 21 of chapter 31, Jacob's flight. It says, starting in verse 17, Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting, which he had gotten in Padan Aram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep. And what did Rachel do? We're finding out about the main characters here. And Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, in that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward the Mount Gilead. Stop right there. After Rachel and Leah agreed to accompany their husband Jacob in 
and obedient to God departure from Laban and from Haran, Jacob apparently very quickly made all the needful preparations to to leave, to depart. In verse 17 here, we learn that he put his children, it says sons, but we know he also had at least one daughter. He put his children and his wives on camels, and then he gathered together, well, of course he had done this before, but he gathered together all of his flocks and his herds and collected all of his other belongings to begin the journey back to Canaan and and to who in specific? His father, Isaac, we read in verse 18. No mention is made of his mother, Rebekah. So by now we know that she had vanished from the scene because it was to his his father alone that he would return. Rebekah had obviously died somewhere in the, the 20 years that Jacob had been up in Haran. And so she was never able to see her favorite son, again after he had left Canaan 20 years earlier. Now we are told that Laban had been doing what while Jacob made his escape? Right, he was shearing sheep during the time of Jacob's very quick preparation to depart. Not only did Jacob know, I'm sure he planned this purposely because there was a certain time of year that they would shear the sheep and probably Jacob had sheared his sheep maybe a little bit earlier, maybe the week before, so he had all that taken care of. But he purposely knew that Laban would be very busy during that particular uh, activity. And also there was all kinds of feasts which would, um, festivities, I should say, which would accompany the annual event of shearing the sheep. So Jacob knew that, and that's when he planned to make all his preparations to depart. But he also apparently purposely waited to steal away when Laban was with the flocks that were kept by his sons. Remember, he had taken some of his uh, solid-colored animals away and given them to his he was afraid Jacob would steal them in order to do the breeding and he had given those solid colored sheep and goats to his sons and told his sons to go where everybody remember it was in verse 36 of chapter 30 right he told them to go a th- three days journey away now we find here that that plan of Laban's which was you know done because he didn't trust Jacob Now we find out that it actually was to Jacob's advantage that he had done that because it allowed Jacob to leave without Laban's knowledge. Laban and his sons were three days' journey away. So Jacob had complete privacy to um, gather everything together and sneak away. So he stole, or steal away. Since I called it stealing away, let's say he stole away. And that's what the scripture says. He stole away at a time when he knew that Laban and Laban's sons would be very preoccupied. In fact, for three days, Laban remained unaware that his son-in-law, along with his family and all of his possessions, had left Haran. This time we find that Jacob did not attempt to get Laban's permission to leave. Remember, as he had done six years earlier, he had to go to Jacob, I mean to Laban six years earlier and ask him for permission to leave. Why why was that necessary at that time? Because he somebody needs to answer behind besides Terry here. How about over here? <laughs> she knows all the answers, which is good. I'm not putting you down. But he left, why? I mean, 
<laughs> She's too smart. Right, exactly. He didn't own anything. So he, I mean, he didn't even have animals of transport. He had no men servants to, to uh, fight on his side if there was a battle or anything. So um, he had to ask Laban's permission last time. But now, with all of his own increased wealth and his own animals of transport, camels and that sort of thing, and men and maid servants, probably many of them, um, to go along with him, and also with his wife's agreement to willingly depart with him. Now he didn't need Laban's permission. We know that Jacob, from man's perspective, had very good reason to depart from Laban in secrecy. And he himself is going to tell us the reason he did that later on in this chapter. When Laban did discover Jacob's absence, what did he do? He chased him down. And certainly we know he would have attempted to do Jacob harm and take back his daughters, Rachel and Leah, and all of his grandchildren, and probably, most likely, even take back all of Jacob's possessions, you know, all his livestock and even probably his material goods. Laban would have done that. Most commentators feel very sure about that. He would have done it if God himself had not intervened, which is exactly what God does. We'll see a little bit later. Laban was a very self-centered, unscrupulous man, and he would have thought nothing at all. I mean, it wouldn't have affected his conscience probably in the least if he had sent Jacob back to Canaan, and, you know, if he even spared his life. Let's say he did spare his life, but he would have thought nothing of sending Jacob back to Canaan to his father just as he had arrived in Haran 20 years earlier with absolutely nothing. So before Laban learned anything about Jacob's plans, so that, you know, this is from man's perspective why Jacob left secretly, because he knew Laban and he knew what Laban would do. So he, um, he hurried up, he loaded up his family, his servants, his flocks and his possessions, and he crossed over, it tells us in verse 21, he crossed over the river. Now what river do you think that was talking about? Here's Haran right there. I should have a pencil, but there's Haran. What river would he have to cross over? Can you, re- can you see it? Right, the Euphrates, that's a reference to the Euphrates River, which um, they, they tell me up here where he'd have to cross. There are several places where he could do that. The river was shallow or is shallow enough that they, they um, could have crossed over. And then it tells us that he headed southwest toward Mount Gilead, which is really speaking of the mountainous region of um, Gilead. This, it's a whole mountain range here, which is on the um, east side of the Jordan River in the land of Canaan. So it's probably speaking of the fact that he headed toward the northern part of Israel. He wasn't right, you know, he didn't go all the way back down to where his father was yet. So with a large caravan of wives and children and servants and livestock, which Jacob possessed, it took him um, probably around 10 days. We don't know for sure. It could have taken him 10 days to maybe um, two weeks to reach that northern Mount Gilead region, which was about 300 miles distance from Haran. Well, the next event in the narrative is Laban's reaction to the news that Jacob had secretly stolen away. And as you can imagine, 
he was rather upset, and he wasted no time in a hot pursuit. So let's look at Laban's pursuit, verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, and it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled, and he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey, and they overtook him in the Mount Gilead. By the fact that Laban and his brethren, notice it says his brethren, that's probably speaking of Laban's sons. We don't know how many there were, at least two, obviously. And it it would probably speak of his other male relatives, which there could have been quite a few of in the village of Haran or town of Haran. But anyway, by the fact that he traveled the 300 miles from Haran to Mount Gilead in seven days, by that fact alone, we realize that they were pushing very hard. This also tells us something of the anger and the evil in Laban's heart. I mean, you can just imagine his fury when he arrived home from the shearing only to find that Jacob had vanished, you know, along with his own daughters and with their handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah, and all of his grandchildren, plus all of Jacob's vast herds and flocks, which Laban had probably been planning on seizing at some point in time for his own. And then, to add to Laban's fury, he discovered that something else was missing. His household gods were also gone. So his adrenaline, and remember, this guys he's pretty old. Jacob is 97, and this is his uncle. So I don't know how old he is, but let's say he's at least 115 or 20. Um, his adrenaline, surprisingly, they, he, you know, he didn't just topple over with a heart attack or something but it was at full throttle and he was very serious about catching Jacob he traveled those approximate 300 miles to the Mount Gilead area where it tells us he caught up with Jacob in seven days now Jacob of course had to travel a lot slower than Laban because he had all those herds and sheep and children and women so he didn't move as fast and it's surprising that Laban could travel that fast at his age. But we have to remember they were a lot younger than a 115-year-old man would be today. More than likely, if he had to, Laban would have chased Jacob all the way back to his home in Canaan, you know, if that had proven necessary. I thought it was interesting to notice that Laban never once traveled that far in order to visit his sister, Rebecca, you know, in all the years that she had lived in Canaan with her husband Isaac. But he would make the trip in record time for the sake of greed and pride. Laban and his sons had no intention whatsoever of allowing Jacob to take all those flocks back to Canaan, to his father's home. They were determined to do whatever it would take to take them from him, even if it meant using force and harming or slaying him, if that was necessary. Well, on the seventh day of hard riding, Laban and his men overtook Jacob's caravan in that mountainous region somewhere in uh, Gilead, or the region of Gilead. And then knowing, once they spotted Jacob and, you know, his caravan, knowing that there was then no way for Jacob to outrun them, 
they decided that they would make camp for the night. This is Laban and his men, okay? They, they decided it would be good for them to all get a good night's rest before the next day, you know, the sun came up and, and they had a confrontation or even a possible battle with Jacob. So they camped for the night. Once again, we find then that Laban was a pawn in the hands of Satan, who would have desired nothing better than to have Jacob killed and to keep every one of Jacob's 12 sons out of the promised land forever, for good, you know, so that they would just amalgamate with the population up there. Because what? Then there would never be any nation of Israel. And then Satan would be successful in thwarting God's work and will concerning the coming promised seed of the woman, the coming Savior, who needed to come, according to God's word, through Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. So um, that, would, that was Satan's plan, and he was using his human instrument, Laban. However, God would not and God will not ever, ever, ever have his will or his work not done. He will never have it stopped by Satan or any human being. And aren't you glad for that? <laughs> That's a lot to rejoice about right there. What God wills and God, what God has promised will always be fulfilled. Nobody under the sun can stop that. And so next we read of the Lord's intervention to protect his servant Jacob. During the night of Laban's encampment there somewhere in Mount Gilead, God spoke to Laban in a dream. So let's look next at God's intervention in verse 24. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob either good or bad. God had already intervened in the situation between Laban and Jacob when he ensured that Jacob's flocks and his herds increased regardless of how many times Laban had attempted to cheat on his original contract that he had made with Jacob. And how did he try to cheat? By changing his, Jacob's wages Ten times, we're told. So God had already inter intervened to prosper Jacob, right? Now, in verse 24, we find that he also intervened in order to protect Jacob. Does God do the same thing for all of his children? Yes. God will protect his children and he will prosper his children so that his will, if that's in accordance with his will and his word, he will do that. He had promised, remember, back at Bethel, when Jacob had the dream of the ladder and angels ascending and descending from heaven, God had promised him that he would protect him. Um, he promised that he would bring him back into the, the land, the promised land. He promised he would bring him back to his father's house. So that was, in essence, saying he was going to protect him, right? So he would keep his promise. But notice that God waited, and this is something we need to look at and remember. God waited until just about the last minute to intervene, didn't he? Does he do that sometimes in our lives? <laughs> yes. Sometimes, you know, it's just by the skin of our teeth. And we think, you know, is God ever going to do anything about this seemingly 
impossible situation. Why do you think God sometimes waits till the last minute to answer a prayer or something like that? Right. It strengthens and encourages our faith. He sometimes wants us to get to the point where we realize there is no human solution to a situation. And so then when he does intervene, he gets all the glory. I think about Lazarus when he died, you know, and he was dead for four days. God, Jesus Christ, purposely waited to go to him so that, you know, he would totally get the glory for that because that was definitely beyond a human solution there. And so that's, sometimes that's why God waits to the last minute. Another reason I think God sometimes waits to the last minute is um, I think maybe he was giving Laban as long as he possibly could give him to repent of his evil heart and his wickedness. He didn't, but God was giving him right up to the last minute to do that. So anyway, um, he didn't intervene until it was a very crucial moment. Now, Laban had spent seven days in hot pursuit of Jacob. Now, those were seven days in which he could have repented, but he didn't. They were seven days in which apparently he was stoking his anger instead. He was, as I said, a very old man, and that hard riding would have not helped to uh, put him in a good mood, in a, in, you know, a good temperament. Yet on the night before his confrontation with Jacob, when Laban would unleash the full force of his anger and cruelty, and do you think he could probably be pretty cruel? Absolutely. On the night before God stepped in to protect his servant, he would not permit anything or any man from frustrating his purposes and from preventing him from keeping his word. So in the God-given dream of Laban, Laban was very soberly warned to not even speak to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, not that he couldn't talk to him, but he was not to speak to Jacob if it was, for example, for the intent of inducing, trying to induce him to return to Haran with him. You know, for good. Let's say he was trying to use some sort of a, a, something that sounded good. It wasn't to speak to him good, meaning let's say he tried to tempt him into coming back to Haran because he would triple his wages or something like that. Nor was he to speak to Jacob if it was for the intent of bringing evil upon him, you know, to harm him in some way for having left. So you see what God did? He stopped Laban's greed in its tracks. He also stopped Laban's desire for vengeance in its tracks. Laban would not get even with Jacob for having slipped out on him, nor would he have any claim on Jacob's family, his wives, which Laban always, who Laban always called his daughters. He never referred to them as Jacob's wives. He always called them his daughters and his grandchildren. But God is saying, you're not going to have any claim on them. They belong to Jacob. Nor was he to have any claim on Jacob's livestock. I mean, technically, all those things, Jacob's family and Jacob's livestock, belonged to who? To God. And God had determined to give them to Jacob. We read that. He took them from Laban and gave them to Jacob. 
Now, the impact of this dream on Laban is not told to us at this point, but a little bit later we're going to find out by both his actions and his accurate reporting of that dream to Jacob that this dream did indeed get Laban's attention. At any rate, he was definitely afraid to attempt to harm Jacob or to rob him of his family or his livestock or even, he was even afraid to try to persuade him to return with him to Haran. So the dream had gotten Laban's attention. It's just sad that the God of the dream did not get his devotion. Although Laban would not dare to counter the divine command of the uh, the divine demand of the dream when it came to hurting Jacob or robbing him or even speaking outright evil against Jacob, yet Laban, we're going to find, would still, this man is something else, he, he would still attempt to use his hypocritical craftiness to try to turn the tables so that it looked like he was the innocent victim of Jacob's cruelty in having departed from him without any warning at all. So let's look at this. This uh, accusation from Laban is really something. I, I hope you can pick up on how strange it is. The man was almost neurotic. <laughs> he, he just, I don't know that you'll see that, but he jumps from one subject to the other and he goes from one extreme to, and he contradicts himself and he's hypocritical and everybody standing there listening to him on both sides of the fence knows that everything he's saying is not true. I mean, there's very little of what he says that is true. There's some truth in there, but not much. So let's look at Laban's accusation, starting at verse 25. Then Laban overtook Jacob. This is after the dream, the night before. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mount of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done, that thou hast stolen away unawares to me, and carried away my daughters? not your wives, my daughters, as captives taken with the sword. Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me, and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabret and with harp? Does that sound like Laban? (laughs) And hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Thou hast now done foolishly in so doing. Now listen to this change all of a sudden. One minute he's talking about singing, and next minute he says, It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me yesternight, saying, Take thou heed that thou speak not to Jacob either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou sore longest after thy father's house. See, here he's... He's saying, I understand, yes, I I can understand that you're homesick. Yet, now here's another change of subject. Yet, wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? All right, we'll stop there. When Laban went forth to speak to Jacob after tracking him down there in the mountains of Mount Gilead, he pretended righteous indignation. In his usual hypocritical manner, he asked 
What hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Now notice twice in this verse, which is verse 26, um, is that 26 or 25? Anyway, in the first two, yeah, 26 and 27, he mentions the word steal. Twice he, he uses the word steal with regard to Jacob's unannounced departure from Haran. Now, of course, it was not true that Jacob had stolen away Laban's daughters. I mean, good gracious. That is so ridiculous. How many years had Jacob worked for those two girls? Fourteen years without any wages. He didn't steal them. He, he really worked hard for those girls. And also, by their own willingness, they had gone with him. He didn't pull out a sword and say, you have no choice. That's just ridiculous. Anyway... But it was true that Jacob had stolen away unawares from, Jacob, from Laban. But Laban's own attitude and his own abuse of Jacob had a whole lot to do with that, right? Of course it did. Yet here we find he's feigning total innocence, you know, and hurt. He's acting like he's deeply hurt um, because, he's, you know, he pretends that he had been so, so deeply disappointed when Jacob secretly departed because it prevented him from throwing this big farewell party for him. You know, a big bon, bon voyage party with, with all kinds of singing and joy and playing of musical instruments and so on. And then he said that Jacob's secret escape had also prevented him from kissing his grandchildren and his daughters goodbye. <laughs> Do you notice that he said nothing about kissing Jacob goodbye? Now he had kissed Jacob hello. 20 years earlier, but he didn't say he wanted to kiss him goodbye. So uh, Laban, you think about this. This is so hypocritical. And are there people like this? Oh, yeah, there really are. Sad to say many, many people like this. But Laban had had years and years with his daughters and with his grandchildren to show them love and to show them affection. If he had properly loved them, do you think they would have been so willing to sneak off and leave him without saying goodbye, without kissing him and, and crying and weeping? I mean, that would have been a very difficult thing for Rachel and Leah and the grandchildren to leave Grandpapa if he was a loving, wonderful grandpa. But they didn't think much of it. They left him. So it was a little bit too late for him to attempt to convince them of his affection for them. You know, that which we do for our loved ones while we are with them, not after they have gone or we have gone, that is what serves as real proof of our affection. Laban's show of concern and affection was simply that. It was just a show, and they all knew it. His family, who knew him very well, and the manner in which he had used them for his own selfish gains, they were not fooled. His family was not fooled. He may have called Jacob a fool, and he does here. He says, you know, that which you have done is foolish. He might have called Jacob a fool, but who was the real fool in this whole thing, this whole story? Laban. One commentary states this. He says, quote, it is difficult to conjure up an image of Laban, the genial host, making emotional speeches at a banquet put on at his own expense in honor of the man he had cheated again and again. 
and in honor of the daughters whom he had deprived of their own dowry money. And then there was the deep emotional trauma of losing his daughters and grandsons without being able to kiss them goodbye. One cannot imagine Laban being overcome with emotion. The tirade peters out with a lame, thou hast now done foolishly in doing so, verse 28. It is as if he were saying to Jacob, how much we have all lost, yourself included, because you have gone and spoiled everything by your lack of consideration. End of quote. So you see how hypocritical Laban was in this speech, this accusational speech of his, all the way through it, but this is just the beginning. So everyone on both sides of the situation knew that Laban was not being honest. But they must have wondered why. You know, why didn't he just give the word to his sons and to his other men that had ridden with him to begin battle with Jacob? I'm sure he could have easily overcome Jacob. It wouldn't have been a problem. All they'd have to do is grab one kid, put, you know, a sword to him and say, you know, you surrender or else, or one wife. Because most of the people with Jacob were men or women, right? I mean, uh, boys or women, children or women. He had some men servants, but I doubt he could have overcome Laban. Well, it seems that even Laban himself couldn't stand his own pretension of hurt emotion. Because then, all of a sudden, he just blurt out the true thoughts of his heart. He boasted that it was in the power of his hand to do them harm. And if you will notice in verse 29, of course, you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, the word you is given in the plural. So he's being a southerner here, and he's saying, you know, it's in the power of my hand to harm you all. So what is he doing? He's... he's, threatening the very daughters, I don't know about the grandchildren, but the very daughters at least, that he just tried to say he cared about. And now he's turning around saying, you know, it's in my power to hurt all of you. Now, of course, and he had just accused Jacob of being a fool, but boy, is he really being a fool here? Because what had he just had revealed to him the night before? A dream? from almighty God, you know, of heaven, who said, you know, don't you dare harm my servant Jacob. So Laban's supposed hand of power would have been stopped in a heartbeat. What do you think would have happened to Laban if he had lifted his hand against Jacob or against any of Jacob's family? God, I mean, God just gave him a very serious warning. He probably would have dropped dead in his track. So, you know, that's ridiculous to say that the, the power is in his hand to do Jacob harm. Of course the power wasn't in his hand at all. Perhaps seeing, you know, as he's standing there giving this little speech, he saw that it had done nothing at, at all to bring either fear or sadness into the hearts of Jacob or his family. I mean, none of the grandchildren were running up to him saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, we missed you. Or none of his, da- his daughters weren't saying, Oh, Daddy, we're so sorry. And nobody's really shaking in their boots over this little speech either. So seeing all this, he proceeded to state just why it was that he had told them uh, or that he was not going to attempt to hurt them. Even after he just threatened, said he had the power to do it, but now he's going to be honest and tell him he isn't going to hurt Jacob as he had planned to do. He told them of his dream and his accurate report of that dream 
I mean, he's really honest here about the dream. It tells us that it did have an impact on him. He told them of God's warning to not speak good or bad to Jacob. Now notice that, and and maybe this was a way to protect his manliness or something, his his, uh, macho image. You know, he's saying, I could hurt you, but the reason I'm not going to is because God told me not to, so I better not. Now, neither notice that um, Laban spoke of God as who? My God? No. He, said, he spoke of God as the God of Jacob's father. In other words, the God of Jacob's uh, ancestors, but not as his, not as Laban's God. Now, as we've stated before, Laban had some knowledge, definitely, we know this, he had some knowledge of the true and living God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he paid lip service to that God. But he did know that it was Jacob's God, you know, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had spoken to him the previous night in that dream. He had also known years earlier how this same God had so remarkably answered a very specific prayer of Abraham's servant, remember Eliezer, with regard to obtaining a wife for Isaac. And that, of course, the answer to that prayer had been Laban's own sister, Rebecca, And he had heard that whole fantastic testimony directly from uh, Eliezer. And Laban had also seen how Jacob's God had prospered Jacob, no matter what Laban had tried to do to change his wages. And now, by way of his dream, he had also learned that Jacob's God would not only prosper Jacob, but he would protect Jacob. Yet with all these evidences... And also remember, he is a relative of Abraham. So he had heard from a child about the God of Abraham. But with all these evidences, his whole lifetime, about the power of the true God, Laban still foolishly claimed that the little clay idols, which could not even prevent themselves from being stolen, were his gods. Look at verse 30. Who does he say is his God? Those little images, those little statuettes. That is sad. That is so sad. And yet are there people like that in the world? There are billions of people like Laban in the world who have heard of the true and living God and have even heard from the true and living God, you know, through his word, have even, you know, read some portions, maybe even a sentence or two, from God, and yet they turn to little idols. And an idol doesn't have to be a little statue. It can be money. It can be your own um, position, your yeah, success. It, it can be your children. It can be your job. It can be your spouse. An idol can be anything that comes between you and God. Remember, that's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, that we are not to have any idols before us. We're to worship the one and true living God. So it's really sad. Laban's whole life is so sad. 
Now, in the final verse of Laban's accusational speech, he seemed to say that he understood Jacob's longing for his father's home. But this was also a hypocritical statement on his part. If he had really sympathized with Jacob's homesickness, and then he would have allowed him to return home, you know, six years earlier when Jacob had said he wanted to go home. Instead, he had, all, he had done all that he possibly could do to delay Jacob's return. And he would have, if he had had his way, he would have kept Jacob from ever returning, you know, um, to the promised land. He would have kept him indefinitely in Haran, whether dead or alive. It may even be that Laban here was being a little bit um, sarcastic in his comment to Jacob about his homesickness. You know, it's obvious that Laban himself only had disdain for the home and for the family in, in the way that he really displayed no natural affection for his own daughters or the son of his own sister. And, and probably he thought that Jacob's atta- attachment to his father was a little bit of a, you know, a sign of masculine weakness. Oh, so you're homesick and you got to go running back to daddy. You know, that might have been sort of the, the attitude of his uh, speech here. Well, whatever Laban's level of fear with regard to Jacob's God might have been, it was not high enough. That level of fear was not high enough to prevent him from then making the most critical charge of all. He accused Jacob of having stolen his gods. Now, was that speaking evil against Jacob? It was. So he really disobeyed God's command here. He accused he didn't, he didn't say, somebody in your camp has stolen my gods. He said, thou. He, so he was making the accusation against Jacob. And this, by the way, is the third mention of stealing in Laban's opening words to Jacob. So, you know, he calls him a thief three times. And it really, I think the word is used over and over again to uh, purposely remind us that the man who had stolen Jacob's long-awaited wedding night with Rachel and who had stolen his daughter's dowries from them and who had attempted to steal Jacob's rightful wages from him ten times and who would have definitely stolen away everything that Jacob even had at this point in time if God had not threatened him that he was reaping what he had sown. He is now the one who had everything stolen away from him. Jacob had indeed stolen away from Laban. And even though Jacob had not stolen Laban's gods, with a small g, um, nor had he stolen Laban's daughters, yet the fact of the matter is that Laban after this little scene, would never see his daughters or his grandchildren or those little idols again. But what is even more tragic is that he would never see Jacob again. He lost Jacob, the only source of true divine witness and blessing that he had in his life. That is the most tragic thing of all that got taken from him. With Laban's final charge against him, Jacob could no longer remain silent. It must have been very difficult 
you know, for him to have kept silent this long with, with Laban accusing him of stealing away his daughters as captives by the sword. You know, that'd be kind of hard to stay quiet while a man is accusing you of that. But this business of having stolen Laban's household, household gods, his idols, that was absurd. Jacob served the true and living God. And even though the Ten Commandments hadn't yet been written, he knew that he was to make unto him no graven image. And uh, he had no desire whatsoever to have false gods in his possession, even if, as some have suggested, even if those household gods may have represented the inheritance rights of their owner. Now, Jacob, of course did not know that his wife, Rachel, had in fact stolen her father's household gods. Literally, they're called in the Hebrew teraphim, T-E-R-A-P-H-I-M, which uh, speaks to the fact that they were statues or images. I'll talk about images in a minute. Um, Statues or images used as household deities And they were thought to bring good luck to the owner. Possession and worship of idols was, of course, and is still, of course, an affront and an abomination to our God, to true faith in Jehovah God. Laban was an idolater, even though he knew about the existence of God. God was to him the God of Jacob, but his gods were these little idols. And remember, he had called Jacob's behavior foolish, but he who had just received a direct revelation from the one and only living God, you know, just the night before, yet who still referred to these little clay statuettes um, as his gods, and, and these are little idols that couldn't even prevent themselves from having been stolen, he's the one who's foolish, right? And can you imagine God speaking to you directly in a dream one night and the next night you're calling these little statues your God? That's what he did. So he was the most foolish of all in many ways. Rachel was apparently influenced by her father in this regard. Although she came to the point, and we have studied this before when she was having Joseph, but we learned that she had come to the point where she did put her faith in Jehovah God. Yet, she did not completely give up her former superstitions regarding the household gods. And, you know, this, this, is, this can be true with many, many Christians as well. That's why John, the Apostle John in the first epistle of John, the very last verse of that epistle, he says, Little children... Now, who is he talking to? Believers. Little children, keep thyself from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Because we can have idols even as believers. Somehow, she probably thought that bringing the teraphim, these little idols, with them on their long journey and to their new home would give them, quote-unquote, good luck. Do Christians wear good luck charms? Yeah, they shouldn't. I mean, it, my my well, my father isn't one to use as as an example because well, he was because he thought he was a believer, you know, a professing Christian. Many professing Christians um, have idols in their homes, even, and um, 
I used to see them in Chicago on the dashboards of their cars or hanging from the rearview mirror or wearing certain little medallions around their neck. My dad wore a little St. Christopher medallion around his neck for years and years and years and years and years because he thought that that was what protected him through World War II and why he didn't die. He finally stopped wearing it when he fell into a cement truck because his necklace had fallen off and he went down in the cement truck to get it and then it, <laughs> they were going to fill the truck with cement not knowing he was down in there. His luck changed. <laughs> But, uh, you know, just looking back at Laban and thinking, well, this doesn't apply to today, it does apply to today. It can apply to even some of us if if you're superstitious about maybe not walking under a ladder. Or, now, that's just wise not to, you know, because it could be a can of paint up there or something. But if, if a black cat runs in front of you and you go, oh, no. Or if you find a penny, you say, oh, I'm going to be lucky all day. Or you don't walk on the crack on the side. I mean, there's all kinds of silly things that we, that we do and say and, and think even that are totally superstitious. Furthermore, many Christians are reluctant to put away all their idols. And worship God alone. Remember, just remember this. An idol is anything that comes between us and God. Anything at all. It can even be our Christian service. If that comes between us and God, it can be our idol. Okay, we're never going to finish if I don't move along. Let's look at Jacob's defense now. Verses 31 and 32. 31. And he, this is Jacob now. Jacob says, what shall I give? And he said, what shall I give thee? Wait a minute, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder that didn't make sense. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, verse 31. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, peradventure thou wouldest take by force thy daughters from me. And now he talks about that. He, first of all, he addressed the first accusation about stealing away Laban's daughters. Now he addresses that accusation about stealing the idols. He says in verse 32, With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. Before he addressed the issue of having stolen, you know, Laban's idols, Jacob went back to his the first accusation about having secretly stolen away from Haran. And for the benefit of everyone who was listening to this confrontation, Jacob felt it was needful to explain why it was that he had not told Laban ahead of time that he was leaving. There might have been some family members or some of the little children that were listening or some of the servants on either side, you know, in Laban's camp or even in Jacob's camp, who, you know, really didn't understand the reason for Jacob having secretly stolen away. So he wanted to make it known to all, now that he had been openly accused in front of everybody, that it was his fear of Laban's reaction which had caused him to sneak off. He feared that Laban, you know, when he went to Laban, if he went to him honestly and said, I'm going to leave, that Laban would forcibly restrain him from taking his daughters with him, knowing that without them, Jacob wouldn't have left. He wouldn't have left his wives. So, uh, so he, he made it clear in front of everybody listening 
why he had done it the way he had done it with sneaking off. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and agree with Jacob's reasons for having slipped away from Laban secretly. I mean, in our flesh, from our human perspective, we say, well, that was good. He needed to do that. However, we do need to ask ourselves the question, where was Jacob's trust in God in all of this? I mean, yes, it's true that he was being obedient to God's command to leave. God told him to leave and he was leaving. But by stealing away from Laban, was Jacob trusting God to take care of the departure itself? Did he think that God would tell him to leave and then not make it possible for him to do so without being deceptive about it? Did Jacob not think that God could intervene, perhaps even in a dream, as God did, you know, in our text before us? Didn't he think that God could intervene and arrange the situation so that Laban had to let Jacob go with his family and with all that belonged to him, that God had given to him? Also, where was Jacob's testimony for God in his fear of Laban? Would it not have been far better for, oops, I'm way behind, I'm sorry. Would it not have been far better for Jacob to do what a godly, trusting son-in-law and business partner, because remember he was a business partner with Laban, should have done. I mean, even in our jobs, if we're going to leave, we're supposed to give two weeks notice, right? You know, even if his father-in-law and his joint business partner was a wicked person, if Jacob was truly trusting the Lord in this situation, he could have confronted Laban boldly, firmly, and yet kindly and told him that he was leaving. In front of witnesses, he could have settled any of uh, Laban's false accusations against him, and all other matters could have been settled, and he could have trusted God to just take care of the entire situation. We know that God would have done this, um, because it was God who had given Jacob that command to leave. Whatever God would have done to make it possible for Jacob to depart with his family and with his possessions would have then served as a testimony... To, to the Lord. You know, all, all in Laban's family would have been, they would have had a great testimony. I can't believe that Laban let them go. Wow. God's, Jacob's God really does watch out for him. And it would have been a testimony also of Jacob's great faith that he was able to stand up to Laban and do things the right way. However, we find, sad to say, that Jacob did not fully trust God in his departure. By his own admission, he feared that Laban would take his wives from him, and probably, too, all that God had blessed him with over the past six years. So he did not do right by Laban. You know, it, it doesn't matter that Laban did not deserve to be treated right. You know, if you work for someone who's a terrible boss, an ungodly, wicked, nasty person, you still need to do what's right concerning that person. Or if you have a relative like Laban, we always need to do what is right 
before God. As a believer, Jacob should have done right anyway, regardless. In stealing away, Jacob had prevented Laban from saying goodbye to his daughters and to his grandchildren. Even, you know, and, and he would never see them again. So, you know, there is a certain amount of truth in the fact that Laban said, well, you didn't even give me the opportunity to say goodbye. Well, after being truthful to Laban about his fear being the reason he stole away in secrecy, Jacob went on to address the issue of the stolen household gods. He was very indignant that such an accusation was leveled at him. Now, of course, Jacob had no idea whatsoever that Rachel had stolen the idols or else, you know, as the head of the household, he probably would not have underscored his indignation with that little threat about uh, whoever was found with the gods would be executed. They would receive the death sentence. And Jacob went a step further and he told Laban that if he found any, if Laban found, in other words, he's giving Laban the, the permission to go and search the camp. And he says, by the way, if you find anything at all that belongs to you, take it back with you. That's how sure, or that's how careful Jacob had been not to take anything at all that had belonged to Laban. You know, he didn't want to give him any reason for chasing after them. He had enough reason for doing it anyway. So he was giving Laban the okay to search their, in their campsite. Perhaps he might have thought that one of his men servants or one of his maid servants might have taken Laban's gods, and if they had done so, they deserved to die. I mean, not only was idolatry an affront to God, but stealing was a very serious sin. Even under the laws of Hammurabi, which were in operation back then, the theft of a god <laughs> was a capital crime. Isn't that an oxymoron? I mean, just think, how powerful, how powerful can a god be if you can steal him? <laughs> uh. So what Jacob would have done if, he, if the thief had been discovered... You know, uh, we, we don't know. It really was only God's grace that saved Jacob from having to make the choice of keeping his word by slaying his favorite wife, Rachel, or um, not keeping his word by sparing her, his, her life. But he didn't have to make that choice, and I think that was God's grace. It's interesting to think about the fact that Rachel's premature death over in chapter 35, verse 19, you know, she died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. That may have been God's answer to her sin and to Jacob's death decree. Because she, she might have fooled her husband. He never did find out. I don't think that she had the idols. And she might have fooled her father. But who knew what she had done? God knew. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now, why did Rachel steal her father's household gods? Scripture doesn't tell us. So we're left to speculate about it. Was Rachel still somewhat loyal to her father's religion, which she had obviously been taught you know, from a child? Did she steal the teraphim for her own use, you know, in order to supposedly protect her family? 
as they made their escape from her father and traveled the long distance back into Canaan? Uh, Did she take them so that they would have good luck in their new home, in the new land? Did she steal her father's gods as a means of getting back at her father? for how he had deprived her of being uh, not being married to Jacob alone or for the way that he had essentially sold her to um, Jacob or the, you know, the way that he had denied both of them their inheritance and their rightful dowry. You know, did she steal the gods because they were somehow tied up with the, her father's inheritance, as some speculate? Because there are some tablets that were discovered, ancient tablets, which say that the one who possessed the household gods would receive the father's inheritance. Did she do it for that reason? Um, Was Rachel perhaps planning at some point in time to give Laban's gods to Jacob? Did she feel that her husband deserved Laban's inheritance because her father had cheated she and Leah? out of their dowry. You know, I don't know what the reason might have been. I, I tend to speculate that she she sort of took them along because she thought they were good luck and in some way still sort of worshipped them. But whatever her reason or her reasons for stealing away her father's household gods might have been, the fact of the matter is that she was wrong for having done so. She was wrong on two accounts. One is because theft is a sin, right? Thou shalt not, it's another one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. And everybody knew, even before the Ten Commandments, they knew stealing was a sin. So she shouldn't have stolen. Second thing is that she should not have had uh, an idol. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or um, bow down to them. So... And also we find out that this sin, this sin led to another sin because it's, it, it, added, it went on to her sin of deception when she deceived her father and her husband. Well, if at, it's at this point that the tension really, really builds now because, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses to write this just does a masterful job because we're holding our breath as Laban. Why doesn't Laban go right away into Rachel's tent? No, we have to build up the tension and the suspense. He starts out by going into Jacob's tent. Now, I imagine that he least of all suspected Jacob of having taken his idols. But he went into Jacob's tent and searched it thoroughly, first of all. Then whose tent did he go into next? Leah. Then he, it says he went into the maidservants, I think, doesn't it? He went into each one of Zilpah and Bilhah's tents. Probably the other people didn't have tents, so he went into the big tents, you know, and searched all through. And we're holding our breath because we know now um, he's going to go into Rachel's tent. We know what Jacob and Laban do not know. We know that Rachel has the idols. And so as he enters into her tent, we know, uh-oh, fatal discovery. It's going to, you know, it's going to be discovered. Now what's going to happen? We don't learn until the last possible moment that Rachel had devised a scheme of her own to prevent discovery. Now here we see she really is her father's daughter. So let's look at Rachel's deception, verses 33 to 35. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. 
Now, Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture. That speaks of a saddle, a camel saddle. And sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. And she said to her father, and she, she says this in a real sweet little voice, she says, Let it not displease my Lord, she calls her father my Lord, that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he accepted that. He searched but found not the images. This is so clever. Rachel had placed those idols, and they couldn't have been too big because she put them inside a camel saddles, all right? And then what did she do? She sat on them. Oh, I got a picture, but the picture shows her actually laying on them. But the scripture says she sat on them. Then when her father entered the tent, she sweetly told him, even calling him my Lord. I mean, you know, he was a hypocrite. She was a hypocrite. <laughs> she told him that she hoped he, it wouldn't displease him, but uh, she couldn't get up because what was she experiencing? The custom of women, we all know what that was. She was having, she said, we don't know if it's true, but she said she was having her menstrual period. And men seem to avoid having lengthy discussions with women (laughs) about such things. So he said nothing further. He accepted her excuse for not moving. And he went on with his search of the rest of the tent. Okay, and found not the images. Now, by the way, it could also be, I mentioned earlier, that the teraphim were images. This doesn't mean they can't be statues, but they could have been statue images or replicas of family ancestors. You know, made to look like grandma or great-grandma or grandpa. And it was the custom among pagans that such images were honored and even consulted in a divination kind of a way um, to, to predict the future. Now remember earlier Laban had said that he had learned by divination that the Lord had blessed Jacob, da-da-da-da-da. Well, it could be he went to his household teraphim, which looked like great-great-grandma or something, and asked why is Jacob being blessed? And, and that's how he learned. I know it sounds crazy, but people all over the world do this today. They do. They do. They do. Now, um, obviously, if the idols were hidden in the camel saddles, they, as I said, they were rather small. And they, they were rather impotent, too. I have to throw that in. Well, this is the first mention. You might want to write this down real quick. I'm almost through. First mention of images in the scripture. And it's the first direct reference to heathen gods, which is interesting. So Rachel succeeded in deceiving her father just as years before Jacob, her husband, had succeeded in deceiving his father. Also, she deceived her husband. Jacob never, I guess, did find out she had those idols. Just as Rebekah had deceived her husband. Isaac. As far as we know, Rachel was never discovered to have had these idols. Perhaps if she was smart, in the dark of the night sometime, she buried them deep into the ground where they might never have been discovered until centuries later and may still not be discovered. Maybe there are images of Laban's great-grandmother still buried up in the Mount Gilead region. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, she would have been smart enough, I would think, to have known it would be too dangerous for her to continue to possess them after this. Because if Jacob found out that she had them all along, 
he would have been furious, and I don't know what would have happened. Um, but God did know, and as I said, she did die a premature death. I know. All right, now there is some humor in this account of Laban's household gods being so impotent that they are tucked away in a camel saddle. You see what God the Holy Spirit is doing? He's putting this all in the right light. Um, perhaps they're even in there standing on their heads. <laughs> and then they're sat upon by a woman having her period. What does that, according to the old customs, that defiled those gods? Listen to this, and I'll close with this. Dr. Phillips, in his commentary, writes this. He says, and there we have it, the wretched nature of idolatry, the the fierce satanic grip it gets upon a soul. Just last night, Laban had met the true and living God, yet he still referred to the wretched little clay idols as his gods. My gods, cried Laban, gods indeed. Mighty gods, gods that could be stolen, gods that could be packed up like old pots and pans and stuffed into a bag, gods that could be bounced and jostled over 300 miles without a word or whimper, gods that could influence wind and weather, it was believed, yet gods that could not even cry out to the deluded man, here we are Laban, (laughs) on our heads in Rachel's saddlebag. My gods, the deluded Laban cried with the voice, while the voice of the true God was yet ringing in his soul. Sad, sad, sad. This Actually, Laban loses in this entire scene, doesn't he? Because even his most grounded and his most dangerous accusation um, was appeared, at least appeared to be totally unfounded because he had to come back out to his own men with nothing. So it looked like He had, all of his accusations had been um, false. Anyway, next week, Lord willing, we'll return and we'll see Jacob's um, more sound and righteous indignation as he finally unleashes all of his anger over the last 20 years on on Laban and what, what Jacob has to say.